0: welcome to Retro Game
1: Audio. My name's Patrick. And I'm Steve. And what are we talking about today, Steve? Well, today we are very excited to be talking about the Super Famicom, also known as the Super Nintendo.
2: The
0: Super Nintendo is a legendary system, and it's actually kind of hard to think of a way to introduce it, because I think everyone knows what it is already. Uh, Steve, did you have a Super Nintendo growing up?
1: I did, yeah. Um, I actually had a Super Nintendo way before I had a Sega Genesis, Uh, even though I'm kind of like, I kind of consider myself a Sega kid, but I mean, I, yeah, I had a Super Nintendo. I loved that Super Nintendo. I actually, like, really stupid story, but... uh, my parents wouldn't buy me one because I already had Nintendo. They didn't see the they didn't see the value in having two consoles. And I mean, I, I can totally understand that. Um, and so uh, they made me save up my allowance to buy it. Uh, and they used, I used to have to like clean this entire room and everything. And they paid me five dollars a week uh, and until I saved up. You know, it came out in '91 or whatever, and I, I saved up until '93 and then finally bought it. Uh, I went into Toys R Us, I so remember, remember you used to go to Toys R Us and they used to give you those like little, you used to take the little slip, it was like a, you had to go in the aisle and you get like that, that yellow slip and then you bring it over to the retail person and then they, they take you to the back room and they let you buy it or whatever. Um, and I'd saved $150 and it came to $165 with tax and my parents made me wait three more weeks to buy it. No. <laughs> um You know, teaching me a little bit about money, and then I majored in music, so I I I got—I guess—I didn't learn anything. Um, But (laughs) no, and I mean, I played The Living Daylights out of that. They actually had to like make rules about it because I was playing so much. I I really, really loved my Super Nintendo. (laughs)
0: That's great. Uh, Yeah, for me, the Super Nintendo is like the first console that I can remember being new. Mm. Uh, You know, it was like the coolest, latest system that everyone loved. And you know, I'm just a little too young to remember it actually having launched. Uh, but I do remember, like, wanting to go to the game store just to play the Super Nintendo that was set up there. Um, <laughs> and, like, f- for my childhood, like, the whole point of the game store was to buy G.I. Joe's and play Super Mario World, basically. Um, and it's funny, you mentioned a $5 weekly allowance or whatever. That was also my allowance. Um, but <laughs> but there, I always did not have, like, the restraint to save up uh, that much money. I just spent it on, like I said, G.I. Joe's or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I, I never had a Super Nintendo growing up, but it was always, like the system that I would want to play at friends houses or whatever to play at the game store.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I just like, I remember I would, I would do that. And my parents would I, like, I didn't have a lot of games. I think I just had literally like super Mario world and super Mario Kart to start. My parents were like balked at the prices for most of the games because Nintendo games were not cheap, but they were like cheaper. I guess they were looking at the Nintendo games and saying they were just as good or something like that. Mm. Um, so I used to rent games all the time. We used to rent, well, I used to rent, well, you know, in quotes, Final Fantasy three, Final Fantasy VI. I rented it so many times from the video store that the guy actually just let me buy it from them for like $20 or something. So oh, wow. so like my, my copy of Final Fantasy three from being a kid is uh, Easy Video in Ramsey, New Jersey's copy of Final <laughs> Fantasy three. <III, laughs> if anyone remembers that. And no one here does. But yeah, it, it's got the labels on it and everything. It's like, you know, with a barcode, like, and it. you know how like those old video stores would put that like. Uh, that silvery label on it that was impossible to take off. Yeah, it's right over the front of the the (laughs) car. I know. (laughs) So before we do our usual breakdown of the audio, let's talk a little bit more about the history of this console. The Super Famicom was released in Japan on November 21st, 1990. The U.S. saw the console about a year later, uh, on August 21st, 1991, as the Super Nintendo. EU audiences had to wait even longer, which would be April to June 1992, depending on your country. Uh, Some articles say the U.K. got it first in April, but I'm not exactly sure. I only read that on, like, a wiki. Um, And it was, you know, so it was called Super Famicom in Japan. It was called Super Nintendo uh, in the States. Uh, And EU audiences also in the PAL regions knew it as the Super Nintendo.
0: The Super Famicom featured a 16-bit processor, the Ricoh 5A22, and it's apparently similar to the processor that the Apple II GS has. And so you noticed a bit of a parallel in the development of the systems here because the NES had a processor uh, similar to the Apple IIe. So they sort of evolved in the same way.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're both fairly popular chipsets, so I doubt it's really on purpose or anything, but it's still kind of an interesting fact. So anyhow, the system, you know, being a 16-bit system, was kind of a direct response to a changing market in the video game industry.
0: Yeah, we've mentioned in a previous episode that uh, other systems were beginning to creep up and steal parts of Nintendo's market share. This basically forced Nintendo to respond
1: by creating a 16-bit system. This risk paid off as the console was an instant success. Uh, Debuting at roughly $200 US, which is a great price when you really think about it, Uh, Nintendo sold out of the initial 300,000 units in Japan within hours. Uh, Stephen Kent, who wrote the, I guess now it's kind of an antiquated 2001 book, uh, The Ultimate History of Video Games, the story behind the craze that touched our lives and changed the world, Um, which I've actually had a copy of that gifted to me about three times by relatives for various reasons, (laughs) like Christmas. Like I literally that I'm looking at it. It's on my shelf right over here. Um, (laughs) But so I kind of I saw that some of the Wikipedia stuff that I was looking at was linked to that. So I reread his information on that. And a lot of it was great because I think the ink wasn't even really dry on the Super Nintendo in 2001. Um, So but okay, so he kind of talks a little bit about that whole experience. Uh, you know, of that release and everything being sold out so quickly. And he mentioned in the book that the government actually had to step in and tell Nintendo not to sell or replenish the stock of systems during the week due to social disturbances caused by the release. So wow. many people had called out of work and like literally nothing happened in, uh, in Japan when it was released. So they told Nintendo only release it on the weekend um, <laughs> if you're going to release any more. Uh, in addition he also mentioned uh that it, it that kind of all caught the attention of the yakuza and because of that they had to have like shipments of Super Nintendo or Super Famicons uh protected and kind of released in like public places <laughs> to make sure that no one was going to uh you know steal them or uh you, you know sell them and steal them to sell them on the market or black market or something
0: wow that's <laughs> crazy
1: so of course you know now that the console was kind of selling uh, and to keep, I kind of keep the Super Nintendo on top, Nintendo managed to keep all of their most important third party, and I say in quote, monopolies <laughs> of, of companies from the Famicom era, which would include Capcom, Konami, uh, Koei, Square, Enix, Tecmo, a couple others too. Uh, though as time went on and those, those contracts that they were still bound to expired, many of these companies began to produce games for uh, both the Super Famicom and rival consoles, such as the Sega Mega Drive
0: yeah i remember like i was surprised to learn that castlevania bloodlines for the sega genesis came out as late as it did um isn't that like a 94
1: game or something like that i think it is 1994 that was a, that was my gut feeling yeah. yeah
0: and then i like later reflecting it's like oh that's because konami actually didn't release anything for the sega genesis for a while specifically because they were doing everything on the super nintendo yeah f- i think for a while.
1: hyperstone heist the uh, teenage mutant Ninja turtles hyperstone heist is like 1995 or something like that it, it was it's very late in the life of the console.
0: Yeah, it's crazy, um, but like companies like Square and Enix stayed loyal and helped create one of the most impressive RPG libraries of the sixteen bit era. Uh, combined with their own library of diverse IPs, Nintendo was capable of just basically burying Sega and NEC in the Japanese market.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it was Nintendo, NEC, and then Sega in, in the Japanese market, uh, and it was you know kind of kind of brutal. And again, we've kind of talked about this before. Uh, and that kind of wasn't the case in the U.S. As we mentioned in the Mega Drive episode, Sega Genesis and the uh, sales in the U.S. were at times higher than the Super Nintendo. And this was largely due to the popularity of Sonic the, Hed- the, just Sonic the Hedgehog in general, kind of a bigger than life character, uh, a faster character. You're, I remember just as you said, you'd go to play Super Mario World and like the Toys R Us or whatever. I went to go play Sonic and he said those Sonic machines that would reset every two minutes so that people could like rotate. You know, so having Sonic and also, well, I guess, more uh, relaxed rules, I'd say in quotes when it came to content, were kind of Sega's uh, big push uh, against the Nintendo. Yeah, like a good example being uh, Mortal Kombat. Yes, Mortal Kombat. Um, The Genesis versions of most of the Mortal Kombat games, especially the original one, outsold the Super Nintendo versions of these games four to one. In some cases, five to one. And and think about this too. Like the Genesis didn't even technically have enough buttons to play the game at the time. Yeah, but, no,
0: I, I remember that clearly. Like that's why I, I always thought it was clearly better on the Super
1: Nintendo. Yeah, I mean, you had to use the start button as your block. There, uh, you would use. I think it was A it was both high punch and low punch at the same time, um, and it's, and it was just called punch or whatever. Um, I mean, they fixed it. So, I mean, if you had the six button controller, you could play it that way. But, you know, I guess we all just suffered to be able to use the blood code. I guess, you know, in <laughs> four to one, we suffered to be able to use the blood code. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And that's not to say Nintendo didn't relax rules a bit more when it came to third party content. Um, but they did score every single Super Nintendo game on a 40 point uh, quality scale, which made things difficult.
1: So then how was Captain Novalin made? <laughs> I, I have no idea. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, yeah, I I guess, you know, if they're going to say that I, I can think of, you know, Beethoven second, like, did that pass the quality or was it, like, anyway, um, <laughs> I mean, you know, and just thinking about like kind of the Super Nintendo's market dominance. I mean, the second Mega Drive on paper is technically just more powerful um, and maybe I guess not as colorful. I guess that was my perception as a kid, like the, the Super Nintendo always looked so much better. It, mm-hmm. it just looked better. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it just seemed a great deal superior. And I guess if that could pass my eye test as a kid, uh, you know, just as a kid looking at the two side by side, I, I guess many other people must have seen that, too. You know, just uh, I'm a dumb kid and I, I have the two next to each other. Super Nintendo is just a brighter, more brilliant and colorful environment, you know.
0: Well, and, and like the f- original Famicom, the Super Nintendo actually allowed for like these car- these expansion chips in their cartridges. So that definitely helped with their graphics.
1: Yeah, and, and so that kind of bridged the gap between uh, the, the Genesis and the Super Nintendo. You know, there was quite a few. There's the DSP series, I think DSP 1 through 4. Then there's the mx fifteen hundred one TFC, the OBC-1, the s dash gd1 which was a super uh, powerful chip that was used only in star ocean and street fighter alpha 2 like if you read the specs on that that was a crazy crazy i mean i i didn't even realize star ocean had like better upgraded graphics I, I it just but i guess it apparently did they also had the sa1 which was the super accelerator chip one that was used in the super mario rpg which was basically another 65 c816 on cart uh, which is basically similar to the processor, but it was at ten point seven four megahertz instead of the three point five eight megahertz of the five eight two two. So it's kind of like a processor replacement, uh, like uh, from what I was reading. And you know, feel free to correct me here. I'm just I, this is my basic understanding. In the when you're playing Super Mario RPG, it can either send commands to the cart to be processed, or it can use the internal processor of your system in tandem, so it can kind of like decide what it wants to do. But that's it's like crazy. It's like having a Super Nintendo on your cart, you know, thinking about it that way. That's crazy. Um, Yeah. Uh, Capcom also produced the CX4, which is in Rockman X. Uh, There's also Super Game Boy, blah, 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 blah. I mean, I think that's most of them. There's just so many of them. And they they really that advantage and the fact that they could add extra like add extra depth to the colors was just huge.
0: And there's also like the, the most memorable one, of course, the Super FX Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, using yeah. Star Fox, Super Mario World 2, etc. You know, it's, uh, it's basically a massive graphics accelerator.
1: It, it's interesting, too, because the release of that actually forced Sega to respond to that uh, and release their own kinds of like uh, chips that uh, were basically making Star Fox like graphics. Um, you know, to try to handle that. And, you know, in a large part of that, I guess the 32X was part of that idea. The 32X being also something that kind of is a huge attachment with a bunch of, you know, extra power to it. But um, I mean, and I guess you got to think about it this way too. And and, and just kind of the the surprising success of everything, the system needed these chips to be as good as it was, you know, like much like the Famicom needs the MMC and VRC six series of onboard uh, chips uh, to really push some of the games over the top. The Super Nintendo relied heavily on cart-based chips, basically. This was, and, you know, of course, if you're relying on something, kind of an additive process to this, it's going to be a pain point. And it was actually a major pain point for many developers it, as it kind of restricted their own process and drove up costs.
0: Yeah, I think the comparison is pretty apt there to how you know, like the MMC chips in the regular NES games. Like the earliest mm-hmm. NES games are pretty bare bones without the mm-hmm. extra mappers involved. So you know, like the Super Nintendo on its own, it's pretty impressive hardware, uh, but actually pretty slow and just not as powerful um, without these expansion chips. So yeah, like you, like you said, it's they really relied
1: on them. Um. So okay, let's kind of wrap this up at the end of the Super Nintendo, if you will. Uh, Super Nintendo was discontinued in the U.S. in 1999, though the Super Famicom was still produced new up until 2003 in Japan. Wow. Which explains why you can find literally buckets of Super Famicoms just like at, at junk stores out there like Hard Off. I, uh, I was talking with TrackMan and, you know, I was going to help him get a Super Famicom the last time I was out in Japan. And there was literally a bucket and I put them all on the floor and said, which one do you want? They were varying degrees of yellow because they were all <laughs> yellowing, but they were like three, 300 yen, $3 and, wow. and like just a huge bucket. Like imagine one of those 40 gallon t- uh, like Rubbermaid containers full of Super Famicons on the floor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, the Super
0: Famicom uh, wound up as the best-selling console of the 16-bit era, at around 50 million units sold. With about 23 million units sold in Japan and 18 million sold in the
1: U.S. and you know the rest worldwide. Oddly, you know, this actually didn't really necessarily mirror the success of the Famicom, uh, which sold 62 million consoles and had about the same lifespan in terms of uh, releases and games, which about you know 10-12 years. So, I mean, when you really think about the Famicom's success, like. 62 million console units after kind of the console market died in 1983 is is really monumental. Like that, that the fact that like, you know, and I guess maybe they enjoyed less of a market share by competitors. Um, But still, just for that era and everything, it, it, it's just a huge number.
0: Well, I mean, like earlier you mentioned that your parents were reluctant to get a super nintendo because you already had a nintendo uh so i wonder if that could be part of it if some people were kind of skipping out uh on the 16-bit generation because they everyone had an nes basically i I forget the stat but it was some mind-boggling number like at one point like one in four homes in the u.s had an nes or something (sighs) it's crazy Um, i I might have that a little wrong but it's not far off from that and uh you know, so that I could see that the the longevity of the NES, I think, you know, could explain why the Super Famicom sold a bit less.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, like, you think about kind of the uh, the console crash and, like, the video game crash in, like, you know, 82, 83. And then, you know, the Famicom was, like, the last thing standing after that. Uh, and then you kind of have, like, home computing kind of rolling around at 1990, 91, 92, um, and then the market becomes really tight with like the Genesis. So actually, you know, maybe I'm just thinking about this out loud, but maybe 50 million units—it's actually really great considering that it was up against like the Sega Genesis, which sold a lot of copies too, a lot, a lot of consoles as well. Um, and the market was just kind of tighter. I don't know. I, I'm very—I'd be very curious as to see if anyone's ever actually analyzed those numbers to to see which is better based on the market. Um, you know, just stupid things we like to talk about on this podcast, but um, I'd, I'd be very curious to see which is actually more of an impressive number. So that about wraps up the history. Uh, now let's talk
0: about the audio of the Super Nintendo.
1: So this was a fun and actually kind of strange system, for lack of a better term, to break the ice with, because it's deceptively simple in some ways.
0: That's right. I feel like there's this sort of surface level to describing Super Nintendo audio, um, where we can say that it offers eight channels of 16-bit sample playback, you know, and that's capable of stereo sound and I mean, like, that's kind of it, right? Like, what else is there? Uh, so when you compare that to something like the NES, where most of the different sound channels pl- play a different role and have different parameters, just, you get the initial impression that there's not as much to talk about with the Super Nintendo. At least that's how I felt.
1: No, no, I agree. And I think that one reason that I've really never in my own life looked into the Super Nintendo audio is just I just I just assumed it was, like, as you said, simple. Like, oh, it's eight, eight sample channels. Okay, cool. Done. Like you know that that doesn't sound any different than eight channels of MIDI to me in a lot of ways. You know what I mean, <laughs> kind of. So so I wasn't like as interested in that. Um, it's like oh I I and like there's other different like sample or PCM playback is like in a lot of other things too. So it's it, and it it seems less. Uh, I mean, because you have to take the sound a sound that's already made and use it. You know, what I mean, so it's just like oh well, someone already made this sound. It's not like I you know I used to say that it was kind of when I was a kid I used to think that like. My Sega Genesis was performing for me like um, the F that FM was somehow a lot better and much more cooler than PCM, and that I, I used to have the interpretation in my own brain that PCM or the eight channels of sample playback were um, pre-recorded in some particular way or something, you know, like, like like it was a CD, and that FM was like oh this gritty chippy sound or something like that, um, and so I guess there's just never been any interest of me to actually dive into what super the super nintendo can do because like i don't know it doesn't seem as interesting i don't know
0: well thankfully it turns out that there is a bunch of cool and weird stuff to talk about i knew that the super nintendo did have some audio features um but when i finally like sat down to explore them and really try to understand them i got a better picture of you know what actually makes the super
1: nintendo sound like what it is so yeah yeah let's let's kind of uh like pull back a little bit here before we go too far into this so as I said, yes, this the Super Nintendo Super Famicom offers eight channels of sound, and it plays back 16-bit audio samples. The audio processing unit of this, uh, the SNES is called the Nintendo SSMP, and that houses an 8-bit processor, the Sony SPC-700. Yes,
0: and that's where the format name of SPC comes from. Uh, SPC is the format used today for Super Nintendo soundtrack rips and you know Super Nintendo music that can be played back on hardware.
1: So despite being the successor to the NES in terms of audio, the SNES feels more like a follow-up to the Commodore Amiga in some ways.
0: Yeah, the Amiga had four sound channels for playing back 8-bit samples, so generally speaking, the Super Nintendo does feel a lot like an Amiga, just with more channels and higher-quality samples.
1: But one of the things that made it more advanced was that you could apply volume envelopes to your samples on the SNES, right?
0: Yeah, and things already get strange here because there's more than one kind of envelope that you can apply. The first kind is ADSR. Uh, That's essentially just your typical attack, decay, sustain, release envelope. Um, There's a fantastic program for playing around with Super Nintendo samples and envelopes. Uh, It's called SNES GSS. I highly recommend downloading it uh, if this is something you're interested in um, because it actually visualizes the waveform with the ADSR drawn over it. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so just as a quick example, uh, here's the same sample with a couple different envelopes on it, uh, showing how you can sculpt the same source audio in different ways.
1: ADSR is pretty is a pretty standard feature, though. Um, you're implying there's something weird about it? or? <laughs> yeah, so in addition to
0: ADSR, there's another envelope system called Gain that has five settings uh, to instead of just four. Um, so those settings are called Direct, Decay, Exponential Decay, Increase, and bent line Increase.
1: So, so what does GAIN stand for if it has <laughs> five different things? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> so I, I think, I swear that there was a discussion on the, the uh, one of the Battle of Bits websites where we were making fun of this and I, I didn't understand it. Like, you know, GAIN not actually meaning what GAIN means if ADSR means that. So if someone can... <laughs> <laughs> Some, someone can remind me of that in the comments. I'd be pretty happy to, to, to relive that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so with uh, gain, unlike ADSR,
0: the different parts of the gain envelope aren't necessarily in a set order. You know, with attack, decay, sustain, or release, it, those things happen in that order. Um, but for example, like the increase and the bent line increase values can be slotted wherever in there. So it's a more complex volume envelope system. And uh, if you want to know more about it, there's this incredibly thorough breakdown of exactly how it works uh, in a thread on the Super Mario World Central.net uh, forums.
1: Uh, so we'll link to that in the uh, show notes. Yeah, you should really check it out. Uh, you know, if we don't have enough time to explain it. And obviously, I think some of it is a little over our heads. So yeah, it's, it gets very technical. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it'd be, you know, just be sure to take a look at that. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, getting back to the sound. So, so like on the Amiga, samples can be looped, of course, right? That's how they kind of, uh, that's how you get the sustaining sounds. Yeah. Uh, anytime you hear something like that, like just, it's because it's looped, not because it's actually one huge long sample. Yeah,
0: exactly. So the waveform can have loop points set. Uh, so it doesn't have to be the entire waveform that repeats when it loops. Like you could just have a small section at the tail end of a voice that loops. Um, and though you usually want your loop points to make a sound that's as smooth as possible, being able to hear an obvious loop point in a sample, is, it's like just one of those common things in Amiga and Super Nintendo music.
1: Yeah, that's actually <clears throat> kind of an important characteristic of the sound. Um, here's a violin sound that comes with SNES GSS, and it's really easy to hear the sample repeating over and over. It always reminds me like Final Fantasy 6 had those strings and you could just hear the string looping point and it wouldn't oh, necessarily yeah. be in time. And yeah. it, just, it, just, it felt like it was pulsing. It drove me crazy. Um, <laughs> but let's talk about the samples themselves for a moment. 16-bit samples. What do we mean by that? Well, if I just record something and dump a 16-bit waveform from Audacity, I don't actually get SNES-like audio from that, do I? That's
0: right. There's more to it, of course. Uh, The samples are compressed using something called bit rate reduction, also known as BRR, uh, which is a form of ADPCM. And it wasn't only used for the Super Nintendo. It was also used for the original PlayStation and the Philips CDI.
1: Hmm. All three of these consoles have something in common, (laughs) Um, but that's another episode. Sure. Um, (laughs) And so what kind of sound quality do we actually wind up?
0: So the Super Nintendo can handle samples of 32 kilohertz, but it wasn't uncommon for them to be downsampled to varying degrees, which would save a lot of space. To start with, here's a source sample of a synth drum sound at 32 kilohertz. Uh, this is just source audio. It's not Super Nintendo. Um, but then it's followed up by its Super Nintendo bit rate reduced version, also at 32 kilohertz. And then it's followed again by downsampled versions at 16 kilohertz and again at 8
1: kilohertz. Wow, that's actually pretty solid. It's not really until you hear the, the final version, um, uh, the 8 kilohertz version, where it, it really starts to degrade, but it still sounds really good in uh, yeah. comparison. Um, and the, the, that 8 kilohertz version of that sample was some somewhere around 5% the size of the original sample. Uh, so... Uh, between the compression, the BRR, and downsampling, you can save a lot of space. It's something I've always wanted to know about like how they could actually put these samples into the small carts or whatever, and it's pretty cool that like they had this whole process uh, here, and that it actually sounds really good, even with all that compression.
0: Absolutely. Uh, so we have some research notes here on Super Nintendo Audio from Shannon Mason that I'd like to reference here. Um, thanks to Jean-Marc Giffen for sending this uh, to us. Uh, she's a composer-enthusiast of the Super Nintendo Sound, and She has some commentary regarding samples that answers some questions that I had. So um, she points out that Super Nintendo samples tend to range from about 200 milliseconds to just over one second in length, Jeez, yeah. with the bottom to middle range being far more common. So, you know, those one second long samples are are not common at all. Um, She also says that some have almost obscenely short loops that last only a few milliseconds. And some of the simpler sounds are so short that they just sound like a click if you
1: play them unlooped. (laughs) wow she also says in quotes even for percussive sounds with an initial attack and a quick fade out such as xylophones snare drums etc it's common for only the attack to be sampled followed by a very short looping section the instrument's natural decay is then artificially recreated using an envelope so in other words the tail end of a drum sound might just be the sample looping forever but you're hearing it fade because the release value of the ADSR is telling it to do so yeah, exactly. So this all goes to show that they've really tried to save space and make samples as small as they could.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly what I was wondering about before. Like, I was curious if there was anything like a really long single sample in a game anywhere. Like, is there a 10 second long sample somewhere? Um, but, you know, knowing more about the limitations now, that's not a thing at all.
1: There's also something else that goes into overall SNES sound. Aside from the bitrate reduction and downsampling, the SNES has a built-in Gaussian filter, which can't be disabled. According to the Battle of Bits page on SNES's audio format, uh, in quotes, the filter is in a place to keep highs and lows of samples in control.
0: Um, Though it's always on and can't be disabled normally, there is an SPC player that lets you disable it. So here's a segment from a Final Fantasy V track. Uh, first you'll hear it as it sounds normally in game then again with the filter disabled uh, so you can hear how it's masking a lot of hiss and noise in the sound
1: oh wow yeah that's that's a fair it's pretty brutal. <laughs>
0: Yeah, the filter pushes the sound towards the mids a lot. So I guess it's with the goal of making things smoother.
1: Yeah, the, sec- the second one is definitely harsher. Um, it's so weird that like, you know, the-, the Super Nintendo always had such a kind of a mellow kind of like centered sound. And I've always thought that Amiga sounded more or harsher, like even though it's the same thing. And like, did the Amiga have anything like this in it that uh, that kind of balanced the sound? Like... maybe that's why it sounds so uh, it's it's by comparison it sounds worse or or is it the eight bit factor that it's a a lower sample rate or
0: you know i actually don't know and that's a great question um so that's something we'll have to look up or maybe some listeners can can tell us if the amiga had some kind of built-in filter to smooth out the sound or not you know i would i would guess that it didn't but i Mm -hmm. really have no idea actually
1: yeah i I don't know either i'm just i'm just really curious about that because like uh, that, that kind of really changes my opinion on a lot of the music I've heard on Super Nintendo, that there's something that's kind of uh, reducing these things, kind of removing some of the the, the artifacts, if you will.
0: Mm-hmm. So that covers the basics of the audio. Uh, let's get into some of the cooler audio features.
1: Yeah, something that kind of takes a back backseat and, and doesn't get as much attention is the Super Nintendo's ability to produce noise. It's not only capable of sample playback, but it also has a noise generator.
0: So the Battle of the Bits entry on the SPC format describes it as a 32 kilohertz noise clock, and it has 32 preset pitches. But unlike the NES, it's all just white noise. So it doesn't have the looped noise feature to make those buzzy or those kind of melodic sounds. So uh, here's what they sound like.
1: oh man those last couple ones at the end there
0: yeah the frequency is really low on the last few ones so they're they're pretty much next to useless
1: yeah the noise isn't something you'll find in snes music very often it's usually reserved for sound effects uh this is a good way to make for making wind sounds or like waves crashing on a beach um like if you heard those sounds you probably remember a lot of them from games you've played like Just listening to those pitches go down, I'm pretty sure sometimes they've just literally used the noise, one of those 32 noises, as is, as a sound effect. Right. Um, You know, so I guess Final Fantasy VI comes to mind, as it always does when I talk about the Super Nintendo. But uh, for parts like the beach, you know, just kind of like in the birds and just kind of like the lapping waves, uh, I think World of Ruin would be a good example without giving any spoilers. And, of course, the Phantom Train. (laughs) So those use a combination of noise and samples to make those sounds.
0: but it is possible to do NES-like drums with the noise if you really wanted. Uh, I'm not aware of any examples from games doing this, but uh, here's a little demonstration of it. So one weird limitation of noise is that while it can occur in multiple channels at a time, it doesn't seem to let you use more than one pitch at a time. So like, if in the first channel you made a noise beat that's supposed to be an alternating bass drum and snare sound, and in a second channel you made a hi-hat sound that played in time with those other sounds, it's going to turn those other sounds into hi-hat sounds as well. It's like, yeah, they're going to lose what their pitch setting is. So uh, stacking noise in multiple channels doesn't seem to work very well on the Super Nintendo. Like, you can kind of do it, but I don't think there's a point.
1: Yeah, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, That's interesting. Man, that's like kind of the lost nuts and bolts for the system. Right. Um, And kind of speaking, kind of in similar terms, let's talk about echo and reverb. Uh, which is kind of another interesting feature of the the Super Nintendo. Uh, so the Super Nintendo had built-in effects for these, uh, so there was no need to use like echo tricks, like two-channel echo or single-channel echo that you'll find in, I guess, NES or in that case, like any kind of tracker-based music. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did these work, and what kind of parameters did they have? Well, before we break it down,
0: let's listen to a quick example of it in music. Uh, here we have Spark Mandrel from Mega Man X. I was able to use a program to disable the echo so you can hear the original version of the track, followed by what it sounds like when you lose the echo effects. And I stitched them together to have them alternate every four measures.
1: Yeah, so what you're about to hear is four measures of the original version, followed by four measures of the echo shut off, and then that repeats. It's so crazy because like that is part of the Super Nintendo's defining sound like the echo, like just hearing it off is like, whoa, like I think that really shows you how much it relies on that and how much it's not just like, you know, eight channels like we were kind of talking about. Like it has these kind of features that are distinctly itself. It's just something the Super Nintendo uses. You know, it's just so interesting.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's another good example we can use from Chrono Trigger. Uh, There's that opening track with that ticking clock sound. Um, Mm -hmm. You can hear what it sounds like before and after uh, you remove the echo.
1: (laughs) It it sounds so... (laughs) It sounds so bad without it. I know, I know. It's so crazy because, like, when you think of that in real, like, music, like, how would I do that if I was using, you know, Family Tracker? That would be like four or five channels of, like, you know, just trying to create that extra, the extra uh, echo effect on there. But like the fact that you can just turn turn a knob or like, uh, you know, from yeah. an ignorant standpoint, turn a knob and put that on, yeah, uh, it's just awesome.
0: So to get down into how it works, uh, there's an effect for your initial echo, which just occurs once. It doesn't reverberate or produce multiple echoes.
1: So it's just your starting note and one single repeat of it.
0: Yeah, and so you have parameters for changing how far apart that echo happens. Uh, There are 16 options, with the zero being the note doesn't echo at all. Actually, it just doubles up on top of itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then every option after that adds 16 milliseconds of delay, uh, capping at 240 milliseconds being your, you know,
1: biggest option. Wow. 240 milliseconds actually a really long time if you think yeah. about it. Yeah. But um, so we have an uh, example here of all the echo settings uh, where you'll hear three quick notes play each setting.
0: So the uh, SPC-700 has a 64 kilobyte RAM limit that needs to house everything relating to the audio. Um, and the echo effect can actually be very taxing on this. So every increase in size of the echo requires another two kilobytes, meaning the maximum amount that gets you that 240 second millisecond delay, that requires 30 kilobytes. So as the Battle of the Bits page points out, like that would take up almost half of your resources, like eating up space that you need for samples and song data.
1: Yeah, so I guess as a result, you probably don't see the biggest echo effects used very frequently.
0: Yeah, I'd be interested to see if any games uh, use the biggest one at all, actually. Um, So to make these demos, and I'll talk about it a little bit more later, I was using a program that's a tool for hacking Super Mario World. So I was basically adding these demos as another track to the Super Mario World soundtrack. And the echo effect worked up until that very last one. So getting u- echo number 15 set things so far over the edge that I had to delete a bunch of other music data. Like I had to gut a bunch of songs and sound effects just to fit it.
1: So whereas nothing, you didn't actually have to delete anything to pull off uh, echo number 14.
0: Right. So like the second biggest one fit no problem. The last one required me to d- delete a whole bunch of stuff.
1: Y- yeah, I could see how that's not going to be common at all in SNES music. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: And and on top of that, I mean, it's un- especially unnecessary when you consider that choosing the biggest echo setting isn't even really what you're looking for uh, if you're trying to make like a big reverberous kind of sound.
1: Yeah. Um, that's
0: because there's a secondary effect known as feedback, uh, sometimes referred to as reverb.
1: Ah, so, so this is what stacks up more versions of the echo so it doesn't happen just once, basically.
0: Yeah, and so this isn't something where we can realistically demonstrate all the examples, you know, because it's not just sixteen. There's something like 127 options, um, mm-hmm. you know, not counting this other secondary effect we'll talk about in a second. Um, so, here's just a few examples of feedback, ranging from low to high amounts of it, and this is using a mid-sized uh, echo effect to start with.
1: Oh, that last one was pretty long.
0: <laughs> yeah, actually, if you put it at the max value, uh, it'll last forever.
1: Oh, how useful.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so something we haven't really talked about yet is the panning. Right, like, so panning on the Super Nintendo works by giving you two volume sliders for each side of the audio. Uh, so that means you're not just picking from discrete options like left, right, or center, like a hard pan sound, which is what I think the Amiga is stuck with. And also it doesn't work as like a ratio. You know, I've seen some panning things be like 40% right and 60% left, like a Mm -hmm. tug of war. Um, But it's not like that. It's just you just set your volume for each side independently.
1: So I guess you have a lot of freedom with panning then.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I'm bringing that up now because the echo effects themselves can even have their own panning. um, Different from the panning settings of the original sample or note that they're based on.
1: Wow. There's so many options. That's really cool though.
0: Yeah. And it does have somewhat of a limitation and, you know, someone could correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think it lets you pan the echo to somewhere where the starting note doesn't already have some volume. Mm -hmm. Like in other words, if your starting note is hard panned to the left, you can't hard pan its echo to the right, you know, because the right side is already at zero. So it doesn't have anything to work with, Uh, you know, that's how that works. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, but you can pick and choose the level of the echo individually on the left and right side, you know, as long as there's something there to begin with. So so you can have a starting note that's dead in the center, um, but its echo could be entirely just on the right side if
1: you wanted. Here's an example of that. So where does the option refer to as surround sound fit to this? I've seen that mentioned a couple places, but with only a left and right output, the SNES can only do stereo sound.
0: Yeah, so there's a feature referred to as surround sound, but that's just the name for a neat trick that helps give the Super Nintendo a bigger sound with its panning. Like you said, of course, it's just, you know, stereo. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but to give the space more sound, uh, so the trick they use is pretty cool. You can invert the waveform using the surround sound feature. The idea is that when you invert a waveform... Uh, It's, you know, at a cursory glance, the inverted waveform sounds identical to the original sample, right? Like you can't really tell the difference. Mm -hmm. Um, But because it is slightly different than the original, when you play them both simultaneously with like the original pan to one side and the inverted on the other side, it manages to strengthen the panning effect
1: by making them feel a bit more distinct. So that's interesting. So anywhere you can set a value for panning, the surround sound feature could be used, I guess. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you can set up an entire channel to be that way. Or you can mm-hmm. also just do it on the echo effect if you want it, because like just oh. before, as we mentioned, that since the echo can be panned, you can have like the normal core starting sound not have surround sound, but its echo could have it. Um, so here's a before and after example of it just on an echo. Um, the second one has surround sound and feels a bit more spacious, uh, despite the echo and feedback values being identical otherwise. So again, you'll hear one without the effect and one with the effect.
1: The second one sounded a little bit different to me, actually. Yeah,
0: it's it for listeners, it might be hard to hear the difference, you know, especially if they're listening like uh, in transit or something like that. Uh, but there is a difference, and you can definitely easily hear it in headphones.
1: Yeah. When you keep all these effects in mind, the noise generation, the echo, the feedback, the surround sound, et cetera, et cetera, you can see there is quite a bit more going on with the SNES than just mere sample playback.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's even more to it as well. Another key audio feature we haven't mentioned yet, and you know, it's probably the strangest one of them all, it's called pitch modulation. And you use pitch modulation to blend two channels together, essentially, uh, like a primitive two-operator FM synthesis.
1: Yeah, this is something neither you nor myself knew about at all before researching for this episode. Uh, and it's kind of unexpected. Uh, the Battle of the Bits page says the following, pitch modulation is an interesting feature on the SNES. It can take whatever is in the first channel and blend it into the next one, and it mixes together based on pitch and ADSR or gain envelope. It can only act as a two operator uh, modulator uh, since the effects of the first combination do not carry on to a third channel with enabled. Virtually anything can be mixed with anything, but oftentimes it produces distortion or awfully uh, detuned combinations.
0: Uh, I have an example here from Super Mario World, where I added it as an effect to the Star Road track. Uh, so it has a buzzy sound that's not normally in there. So, you know, that probably just sounded a little distorted to listeners, but uh, here's what the pitch modulated voice sounds like by itself. But something that's a little different here than your typical two-operator FM synthesis is that the modulator doesn't disappear into the carrier, so to speak. So normally, like the modulator is just a part of the sound that affects the carrier signal. But here, one of your other sound channels is your carrier signal, but it doesn't disappear into the new sound being made.
1: Yeah, so if channel 3 is affecting channel 4, channel 4 will sound weird using data from channel 3 to mess with it. But channel three still happens and plays normally. Yeah, exactly right. And so Hunt Retro Geek pointed out that this effect reminds him of the turbo Graphics, which can also use the frequency of one channel to modulate the other, um, which is actually interesting. Uh, I think Defle Mask allows you to do that uh, through channel one and two. Um, and it's also like the FM or, you know, the kind of primitive FM modulation for the Famicom disk system. Oh, that's pretty cool. You know,
2: I
0: actually, I don't know much about the Turbo Graphics yet, so that's good to know. So something I was wondering, where does this effect come up? Uh, You know, because I wasn't familiar with it at all. I didn't know of any examples off the top of my head. So I asked Obelich Gonzalez, and he said it wasn't used in his uh, Asterix and Obelix soundtrack. um, But he did point out a sound effect from Final Fantasy VI that uses it. But then I was also wondering if the effect was used in music anywhere, not just sound effects. Uh, Then I was pointed in the direction of the Waterworld soundtrack by uh, Raymond Grody, uh, who also helped me prepare a lot of the previous audio examples using the uh, Super Mario World hacking tool.
1: Just as a quick aside, uh, we were very surprised to find that Waterworld, of all things, has a great soundtrack.
0: Yeah, yeah. And he's actually not the only one to point us in that direction. Um, We'll talk about it a little bit more later. But the Green Lantern and Waterworld soundtracks are very good. Uh, So here you can find the pitch modulation effect in the intro to this Waterworld track, uh, giving the guitar a more distorted sound. Here's an excerpt from the song. So here's the sound channel in question isolated that has the pitch modulation on it. And here it is again with the pitch modulation disabled, making the guitar sound less cool.
1: So that's just one example we came up with for this episode. Um, There's more in Green Lantern, which is by the same sound team, but otherwise we're under the impression that it's not a common effect in music. So if anyone out there, any of you listeners know more pitch modulation examples, that would be great to know. Absolutely. So we're down to the last main feature, the FIR filter. FIR stands for finite impulse response. It's tricky to get a clear explanation on how it works. You can look it up on Wikipedia, but it gets very mathy, Very quickly. Yeah. (laughs) The simple explanation is it's uh, kind of a filtering system to help provide EQ. So it offers eight coefficients, um, but I have to admit to not really trying to understand
0: that on anything more than a surface level, um, since it looked like a lot of effort to make sense of something that I probably wouldn't be able to clearly explain anyways. Um, But thankfully, Raymond has an explanation we can link to. He says, basically, an FIR filter mixes the signal with itself using very, very short time delays called taps or coefficients, which create filtering effects. You can hear the effect in an audio editor too if you use a very, very small delay or echo, uh, generally less than one ten thousandth of a second.
1: Here's an additional quote from Blarg on uh, the Nestev forums. The FIR is like taking the input signal, then adding several versions of it together, each offset by one sample, and with it each one's gain adjusted separately. So you have the input signal, the input delayed by one sample, delayed by two samples, up to delayed by seven samples. So doing
0: this and mixing the gain of the various delays uh, can filter the sound in various ways, like creating a low-pass filter or a high-pass filter, etc.
1: And though it's for affecting the sound of the echo, Raymond shared with us an example where it can seemingly filter your regular sample. Remember that the lowest value for an echo doesn't have any delay and just plays on uh, the sound on top of itself. So you, you can apply filters to that for EQ. In a sense, sacrificing having an echo effect to obtain EQ. He points out that this technique can be found in the Donkey Kong Country soundtracks, which are fantastic, uh, particularly Donkey Kong Country 2 and 3.
0: We have an example here from Donkey Kong Country 2 in the track Schoolhouse Harmony. It opens with a ringing bell sound, and in the first example, you'll hear what it sounds like normally. Is then followed by an example of
1: the filter being disabled. So that covers all the main audio features, but there's also a couple of other things worth mentioning. For one, uh, the SNES was capable of expansion chips, as we mentioned earlier. Like the original Famicom, an external audio source can be routed through it. Um, Though, I guess the only example we can think of of that would probably be the Super Game Boy cartridge. Brace yourself.
3: It's Super Game Boy from Nintendo. Play your Game Boy games on the Super NES in living color. Even choose your own color combinations. Play all 350 Game Boy games. How does that strike you? Super Game Boy for the Super NES. Game Boy games in color intense.
0: So the way the Super Game Boy works is that the cartridge adapter itself is essentially a full-fledged Game Boy system. Just minus
1: the screen and buttons, really. Uh, Yeah, you can think of it as like... There's an actual Game Boy inside the thing.
0: Right. Uh, the Super Nintendo is really only handling the controller inputs and additional coloring and menu effects. Otherwise, the Super Game Boy has its own CPU and outputs its own graphics and audio. The Super Nintendo is basically just routing those through to the TV.
1: With a simple modification, you can literally add a headphone jack to the Super Game Boy cartridge if you, you wanted, it, basically, which helps illustrate how the audio does come directly from the cartridge adapter and not the SNES itself.
0: So the Super Game Boy runs 2.4% faster than the original Game Boy, so music comes out a little higher pitched on it than it should. Uh, Here's an example of the Operation C music sampled from the Super Game Boy, followed by the original Game Boy version.
1: You can hear how the second example was just a little slower and lower pitched, which is how it's supposed to be, though if you had trouble catching it, both versions on top of each other will make these differences very clear, since it sounds horribly detuned and gets out of sync pretty quickly.
0: So uh, one thing I found kind of interesting when looking at the two different versions lined up is that the waveforms are actually inverted from each other for some strange reason. So, for example, if you like took the same source audio, when a square wave is, on the, is in the down position on the original Game Boy, it'll be in the up position on the Super Game Boy. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, you know, I thought that was odd. Um, I'm a TrackMan check the Super Game Boy 2 for us. Um, the Super Game Boy 2 is an improved version of the Super Game Boy that only came out in Japan, but that also turns out to invert the waveform in the same way. Uh, but the speed issue is corrected on the Super Game Boy 2. Uh, I mean, there's actually still a tiny difference in playback speed between that and the original Game Boy, but like it's nowhere near 2.4%. It's basically perfect.
1: So it's weird because like um, I have a Super Game Boy and I have two Super Game Boys actually, and you know maybe someone can let me know about this or why this would be the case. But one of them, I swear, is it, it's faster than 2.4%. It sounds huh. very different. And the other one is just a little bit faster, but they're definitely two different speeds. And I've definitely taken my Pokemon cartridge and put it in there and like, you know, then ran it one way, like trying to be like, am I crazy? You know, no, and- I was reading somewhere and I I don't have the link to it here directly. Maybe someone can correct this if if I was wrong, but there were, it was kind of wildly, you know, it it wasn't like just, it was 2.4% on average. I think that it can be faster and can be slower than that. So I wonder if just uh, uh, I'm a track man, Super Game Boy 2 uh, was just one of the ones that's more in sync or if the Super Game Boy 2 actually had improvements to try to make them closer
0: Oh well, I mean, actually, the Wikipedia states that the Super Game Boy Two uh, corrected the speed issues. Oh, that's well, just so what that, I, I think, know then. <laughs> yeah, so ac- across the board, they should be near perfect. Where why it's while the Super Game Boy is the one that's going to be like pretty far off in, yeah. in speed and pitch.
1: I, I, I like it's one of those things where I had actually researched this a little bit before the episode to, to double check that my hunch was correct, and I couldn't necessarily find something that backed that up. It, I remember that the original Wikipedia for the Super Game Boy did say 2.4% difference. And I remember I was talking with Chippecrit, uh who's a good friend of the show.
2: Chippecrit supplied the audio sample of Operation C from the original Game Boy.
1: Uh, and I was trying to tell him that because him and I were teaching a video game class over the summer, like, oh, you should demo this. And I couldn't find any information about the fact that they were different or anything. And I think so. It's it's back. I don't know. Like, I, I always knew it sounded different. And the two, d- the two super game boys I have definitely sound completely different. The one is like, oh, the yeah. one must be like 5% off. Like, it's like hilarious, wow. like uh, hilariously fast, like noticeable to the untrained ear fast. So wow. I don't know if I like huh. damaged it or something. Is that something that can happen? It, it's just so weird. But anyway, that's weird. We'll have, we'll have to take a look at that. Yeah. Um, So just kind of speaking, you know, more about these kinds of ads and stuff, it's worth mentioning that there were some modern, unofficial devices uh, similar to the Super Game Boy uh, that let you run other platforms on the Super Nintendo. Uh, There's a Genesis adapter, NES adapter, and I think even a Game Boy Advance adapter. But all these have their own AV out uh, on the cartridges themselves and don't pass the audio or video through the SNES.
0: Yeah, it's really strange. I didn't learn about these until recently, but like you can literally plug like a Genesis game into your super nintendo and play it um just- it, it, through, through these adapter cartridges it's just like the super game boy but um but they really only make use of the super nintendo controller and the power of the super nintendo so because you don't even bother hooking your super nintendo up to your tv at that point um so it's like not quite pulling off what the super game boy did like i, I wouldn't you know you can't count that as like expansion audio because it's not routing the audio through it mm-hmm. and i'm just
1: i'm not sure why they didn't design it the same way it's kind of strange yeah, it's so, it's so weird. I mean, and if you really think about the Super Game Boy, and I guess uh, we talked about it earlier, with the uh, SNES's real capability of really kind of, you know, the, the cartridges themselves are almost like miniature, you know, computers in some of these cases because they have like coprocessors on them basically. So, you know, opening that door, it makes sense that they'd have a Super Game Boy and then kind of going even further where you're just literally hooking up a Sega Genesis to it uh, to borrow yeah. like to borrow the controller. Like I don't. Like, I don't understand what, like, what was the demand for this? Like, it sounds like one of those, like, um, kind of uh, knockoff, like, tech toy uh, things that would be in, like, the Brazilian gaming market. Uh, Yeah,
0: it's it's a weird idea. It's a weird, it's like a, I don't see why you wouldn't just make a standalone clone that uses, like, it's its own controller that's more like like if you like the super nintendo controller more just make a clone that has like a super nintendo controller port yeah you
2: know i
1: I, I guess it's just you know the proof that they could (laughs) i don't don't even know it
0: looks it looks really cool seeing it in action but people say that the quality of those are not that great anyways like they're not the best clones out
1: there i'd have to imagine yeah yeah um we also wanted to mention the msu1 uh, which stands for the media streaming unit revision one
0: yeah, this is a homebrew enhancement chip made for the Super Nintendo, uh, kind of like the other ones we mentioned before. Uh, but this one's like a super powerful one that allows the Super Nintendo to make use of four gigs of storage and CD quality
1: audio. It's pretty crazy. Uh, there's a few interesting ROM hacks out there that convert uh, existing games into uh, kind of making the use of the MSU1. Uh, these actually work on hardware if you use, SD2 SNES flashcart. The concept behind
0: it is pretty neat. Like, while I don't necessarily want to hear or expect to hear CD quality audio from the Super Nintendo, Mm -hmm. uh, when you bear in mind like the existence of something like the Sega CD, or you know how Sony was going to make a CD add-on for the Super Nintendo, but you know that fell through and became the PlayStation, um, it's kind of like. I wouldn't call it revisionist history. That's not the right word, but it's sort of like a what if kind of situation.
1: Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting too, like even just thinking about the super Nintendo CD, basically the, the uh, the Nintendo PlayStation that was repaired by Ben Heck and has been like kind of all over the place. None of those really use like even the very idea and prototypes of that original kind of design, you know, didn't, don't even give us a clear example of what it would have sounded like uh, for the super Nintendo to access CD uh, quality audio I guess the cDI is the closest thing you're gonna get to that uh, maybe uh, and mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of like I, I don't I have really no experience with it I assume that there was like some things that used the onboard chip and then also used some kind of uh, for lack of a better term red book like audio mm-hmm. um but you know I just it's it's such a weird thing to think about with the Super Nintendo
0: absolutely and so yeah it's like we have this kind of what if situation yeah. if there were CD games for the Super Nintendo mm-hmm. just the kind of ironic part is They're coming from this MSU-1 chip. They're not actually coming from a CD. Mm -hmm. Um, So here's an example of a Super Mario World hack, which includes some tracks from Zock's Super Mario World cover album, which is all mostly real instrumentation. So it's like, here's actual music coming out of the Super Nintendo.
1: so weird <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean it kind of breaks the it breaks the rules i don't know i mean i i'm used to playing sega cds that had like kind of that i mean even think about like symphony of the night like queued up yeah. tracks i mean so but it's just weird to think of super nintendo like having this And like, they didn't just do this. There's all kinds of other weird hacks out there. Like, there's a Link to the Past with FMV cutscenes and an orchestral score. There's Super Metroid with an orchestral score. There's even a version of Mega Man X3 with music from the PS1 and Saturn versions put onto it. Kind of sounds really lame. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, that's funny because, like, that's kind of like the opposite of something that I've wanted to see from a potential Mega Man X3 mod or re release. Because I liked how those later versions of X3 have those cutscenes added to them, um, but I prefer the music of the Super Nintendo version. So it'd be cool to see an MSU1 mod of X3 that keeps the Super Nintendo music but just adds those cutscenes in, yeah you know? or maybe that already exists off so to take a look, uh, but that would be great,
2: yeah
1: so that covers all the audio features and odds and ends we wanted to discuss but what about the audio sources the samples heard in snes music had to come from somewhere um <laughs> so something we were wondering about was where did they come from
0: yeah so the audio sources of course differ depending on the game sound programmer etc Uh, But of course, you had certain synthesizers, samplers, and sound cards that were popular at the time. So you can find a lot of recurring
1: sources for Super Nintendo samples. Shannon Mason linked us to a great discussion thread on the HCS64 forum, where people are collaborating to identify uh, the sources of the samples in video game music. There's a lot of more modern stuff in there, but SNES games do come up. Um, we could spend like all day relaying
0: specific examples, but the main takeaway is that devices like the Roland SC-55 or SC-88, uh, the Korg M1, and the EMU Proteus 1, uh, these are the kinds of sources that show up very frequently in Super Nintendo soundtracks.
1: There's an interesting post in the thread from anonymous dev who worked on uh, the SNES back in the day who said that, in quotes, Nintendo licensed a Roland GM sound set that was offered to SNES developers, so many early games have SC55 sounds, notably Castlevania IV. They also mentioned that they, in quotes, think the Roland availability is briefly mentioned in the official SNES dev manuals. So it's interesting, you know, in researching for this episode, I, I talked to someone I guess from the video game music preservation fund, it, it, it kind of is lost. I was trying to find the exact source, but I remember someone specifically telling me that they would offer you these Roland sounds uh, and the Roland sounds weren't great. And if you wanted something better, you had to spend more money. So a lot of the uh, soundtracks that uh, we might consider to be not great, um, <clears throat> had to use like kind of the very bare minimum sounds? Um, when I was doing uh, an article that I wrote about uh, H. Kingsley Thurber, who is uh, credited, I guess, with writing all of those uh, soundtracks to like Captain Novelin and all those games that were licensed, those edutainment games that were all kind of licensed in the same uh, by the same company, you know, and, and kind of you know, there's a whole history of it. But someone had mentioned specifically that the, the reason that those games soundtracks are just kind of not great is that they could only use some kind of base model. Uh, sound set that Nintendo had sold them because they were trying to work and make it as, the game as cheap as possible. So I wonder if that was just rolling SC-55 sounds. That would make perfect sense. That uh, would actually make a ton of sense
0: because I read that Bubsy, mm-hmm. that all of the samples in that are SC-55 samples.
1: And that soundtrack is the best. <laughs>
0: um so you know that would make a ton of sense and that reminds me of like a, kind of a similar situation with the Gen's sound driver on yeah. Sega genesis mm-hmm, um where it's like you could make good music with it um you know this castlevania 4 has a great soundtrack and they're saying that that has like the, the Roland sounds um but i think it's a situation where some developers who wound up using it might have had like a set it and forget it sort of approach to the sound design Mm -hmm. because maybe they were just more composers and not sound programmers as much Mm -hmm. so they just kind of used what was given to them and that's what kind of leads to this homogenized low quality sound i think
1: but getting back to that uh that anonymous dev that was talking uh, they never mentioned getting their hands on that sample set uh when someone asked if they still had it because they said you had to request a sample set from nintendo which again backs up what i was thinking that i I kind of lost but um Mm -hmm. Yeah, and their composer, in that specific situation, came up with their own samples, so they didn't bother.
0: Yeah, it's a similar situation with Albert and Gonzalez. Um, he wound up using his own sample set. And I think he said for Asterix and Oblix that he signed on late enough that they kind of already... He did have to make uh, all of his own sounds, um, but he signed on just late enough that uh, that was already, like, established. So he, n- he never heard anything about the role in the sample set, oh, for- unfortunately. Oh, um, interesting. So, you know, it would be cool to find that exact sample set, as much as you could try to reverse engineer it by looking for recurring Roland samples in early Super Nintendo music. uh, I'd expect that things would get a little muddied by the fact that games often use multiple sources of samples. They're not all like Bubsy kind of situations. Mm -hmm. Um, So it might not be obvious when a composer or sound programmer branches off from those, you know, given samples. Um, so anyways, uh, if you wanted to read more about specific samples in Super Nintendo soundtracks being identified, we'll link to the thread in the show notes and all the specific
1: pages I found Super Nintendo games being mentioned. I guess one last uh, example we'll kind of share here uh, before moving on is a preset from the court and one called Busy Talk. And you might recognize that voice from the Lemmings soundtrack. Uh,
0: So I also wanted to talk briefly about some of the tools that are available for making Super Nintendo music. Because Super Nintendo development... At least for musicians, uh, surprisingly, feels a little bit behind, at least compared to other platforms, especially when you keep in mind how popular it was.
1: One of the more popular and fun tools to play with is Mario Paint uh, Music Composer. Mario Paint, of course, had a music mode in which you could write your own simple sheet music, but it had limitations like not being able to put sharps and flats on note, a limited octave range, etc., etc., etc. But someone basically took the sounds it offered and fleshed it into a less limited uh, kind of setup for PC. There's a version that works in your browser and is fun to play around with. Uh, We'll link to that in the comments. Uh,
0: We have an example here of a Mario Paint tune. Uh, If you remember our guest Gary from the Maniac Mansion episode, uh, this is the opening theme to his podcast, Abject Suffering.
1: there's surprisingly like no trackers I guess or uh, that offer all of the audio features of the SNES right you know it's kind of bizarre I mentioned
0: SNES GSS before this is a great program for writing Super Nintendo music in a tracker format and it outputs SPC files and all of that Um, and the one thing it's really good at is loading WAV files um, it gives you all these options for downsampling. it lets you set like the ADSR, it visualizes the ADSR for you, uh, it lets you set loop points. It's really solid with all that stuff. But as far as I can tell, it doesn't let you do the
1: noise, the echo, the feedback, the FIR filters. So despite having a lot of work put into some great features and interface, it still feels like bare-bones SNES audio, sample playback without all the cool stuff. Exactly.
0: There's also tools for converting other file types into Super Nintendo music. For example, there are sample-based trackers that aren't designed for the Super Nintendo, um, but as long as you stick to using only eight channels and meet some of the basic requirements, you can convert them into SPC files. Um, But once again, they don't seem to allow any of the effects. It's just rudimentary
1: sample playback. I mean, like it's cool that you can do that, but again, it still falls short of the kind of thing we'd hope to see for SNES music.
0: Yeah. And like the first thing I wondered when downloading XM SNES, like that's the one for converting XM files to SPC, was like, could it do some of those things? And of course, of course, the <laughs> readme is titled, and I'm not exaggerating. This is the actual file name with the readme. It's, hey, dumbass, this is how you use this shit.txt. That, that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the entire thing is is literally less than 20 words just saying how you input the file you want to like get the output that you need so there's no clarification like on its limitations and so i was naively thinking for a minute like hey you know it could be possible for certain parameters from those programs to be used as an input for snes specific effects during the conversion process but like nope of course it doesn't do that
1: Uh, yeah i I can't imagine that there'd be any way to do that i mean it's just kind of the wizardry of taking an XM file and making spc is probably Enough.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I mean, you're right. And like, I don't, I don't mean to come across as too negative. Like I'm poo-pooing on the efforts of the person who made it. Um, Like, you know, it's definitely not fair to be demanding of a free tool that spits out Super Nintendo music. Like, that's awesome. Uh, And, you know, I know people have used it and really appreciate it. But at the same time, I feel like it's a perfect example of the current state of making Super Nintendo music. It's kind of like all the cool audio features of the Super Nintendo are kind of barely acknowledged or recognized. And it's like I said before, it's just kind of bizarre.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, just there's a couple roadblocks roadblocks for this. I mean, in so much that like you and I to do this, uh, who are really interested in, in, in our, you know, the stuff for the podcast had to do extensive research to just find out what any of the stuff did. Yeah. Um, and I think that that that's part of why it's not in these features. Like, I, I think it's just not either understood by people who are making the music, like, I remember uh, thinking about uh, some of the SPC Echoes competitions. I think that not the last one that was on Battle of the Bits, but the one before that, um, you know, people were kind of lighting up other people because they were using X, uh, XM, you know, files that were, they were making it to SPC and they had no Echoes. And they were just like, well, this is a garbage SNES track because it has no Echoes. Like, what did you do? <laughs> you know, like, like basically uh, the, the community defining that having these features is something that, is a paramount or or fundamental to the SNES's sound um, is something that's kind of new. I mean, where we've had years and years and years of the community, in in quotes, policing what is good Game Boy music. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just really young. And and it's just kind of weird to sit down today and think that, like, I could just sit down and write Sega Game Gear music, like, right now. (laughs) But I I can't, like, you know, like, for, for something that didn't sell... That well, that, you know, and I could just sit down and write it and and play it right off by Sega Game Gear right now. I could go and just do it right now if I wanted to.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's like really weird that there's more roadblocks in place for making Super Nintendo music. And, you know, I can't speak on the behalf of the history of Super Nintendo homebrew development. So, you know, I'm probably lacking some perspective, but... Uh, earlier, we referred to the audio as being deceptively simple, and I honestly think that's what's to blame here. Um, when you compare Super Nintendo to something like the NES, where you have lots of particular waveforms, different sound channels with different sets of rules, and like um, that's not something where you can really get away with leaving a bunch of stuff out. It's mm-hmm. there's such a particular set of sounds that if you're trying to make NES-like music you might be attracted to actually just straight up using an NES for real. Um, yeah. but with, the, with the Super Nintendo, like, oh, you think of it as just eight channels, 16-bit waveforms. Um, you're probably thinking at that point, you can just use any sample-based tracker, or mm-hmm. you can use Super Nintendo samples in a modern, you know, digital audio workstation. Uh, you know, which, of course, there's nothing wrong with that, but I think that's how we wound up in this situation where the audio features are just kind of brushed off to the side.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, when, when I use... a. a When I make any Super Nintendo music, the very few times I've been asked, which thankfully there's only been a few times, uh, (laughs) I've just used uh, Super Audio Cart and just used the preset sounds there because, like, like, and really thinking about that, how would that be any different? Um, You know, that's one of the 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 better SNES VSTs. Um, We were linked to the C700 by uh, Alberto Gonzalez. And that does seem to offer all the bells and whistles. So that might be one of the better tools for making SNES sounds. We don't actually, we probably don't even need a real tracker because it is samples. If we're using all the limitations and we have something that like kind of takes the the actual audio's uh, abilities and kind of lets you mess with those parameters, do we necessarily need it to play off the console because it's just a sample anyway? You know what I mean? Like right. it's such a conundrum, you know?
0: So one other uh, program to mention is Ab Music K. That's the Super Mario hacking tool that I mentioned earlier. Uh, It's MML, so you do everything in a text file. Um, Something that was new to me, but didn't seem like it would be too complicated. But bearing in mind that the main idea behind the tool is to add new music to Super Mario World, it's kind of built around that. And I, I needed help figuring out how to dump SBC files. So I felt like it was actually a bit more complicated than other MML, in a way, just because of the other stuff attached to it, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, that actually sounds really complicated. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and to their credit,
1: it has very thorough readmes.
0: Um, but I think you can only make that kind of stuff so foolproof. And, you know, I don't know what it is. It's just a personal thing. Like, I'm terrible at reading any kind of technical explanation and making sense of it. So I was completely lost. Um, but Raymond Grody from the SMW Central forums was super generous and walked me through You walked me thoroughly through every question I had and provided some tools to make things easier. That's great. Yeah, I'm super thankful for that. But once again, it also kind of shows the weird state of Super Nintendo music. Like the fact that I just want to show what it sounds like when the echo goes through every setting or every pitch of noise. And it's like this was apparently the most appropriate program for the task.
1: Yeah, I mean, like anytime I want to make a VRC uh, 6 track, I have to take my Castlevania or my Akamatsu Densetsu uh, you know, uh, cartridge and reprogram it to play, you know, like, I mean, that's, that's basically what I'm saying, you know, right, right, right. like, like what you, what you did, like, you know, Oh, I want to use this sound. So I have to re like, basically insert my file into a game so it plays in the background. Um, You know, and like, we really need, I guess, a family tracker equivalent or some kind of, you know, it doesn't even have to be family tracker format, but just some kind of tracker format for SNES music. Absolutely. And I do believe
0: there's some stuff in the works, uh, there's something called SNES Tracker Development. Uh, I think C-Trix might also be working on one. Um, so who knows? You know, Maybe better Super Nintendo tools are just on the horizon.
1: Yeah, C-Trix hasn't put an update out on that lately, but um, I'm really hoping that that's something that is in the future. The, the stuff that I've, we've heard that C-Trix has done on it has been fantastic. Um, so it'd be really cool to be able to make some cool tunes on uh, the actual chip. Absolutely all right so that was a rather lengthy <laughs> explanation of everything so let's talk about the music itself from the snes
0: yes but one thing i want to quickly squeeze in here before we jump into the music sort of playlist thing we had in mind uh is vocal samples.
1: Uh, Yeah, so so off the podcast, uh, we were talking about how uh, an increase in the uses of vocal samples is something that we felt was really part of the identity for SNES Audio.
0: Yeah, because, you know, using higher quality samples than what the NES offered, and also just having more room for it, like, I thought it was cool to hear some speech in Super Nintendo games, like, actual full sentences. Um, The most iconic thing that comes to my mind is the introduction to Super Metroid.
2: The Last Metroid
1: is in captivity the galaxy is at peace and of course the first thing that came to mind for me was
3: pubsy what could possibly go wrong did i mention i don't like heights more like a bridge too short hey whatever blows your hair back hey i thought i saw elvis back there shouldn't that be fearless Uh uh-oh well it worked for clint go ahead make my day my contract does not mention paint hey i didn't like this stuff Next time, I get a stunt cat. Is there a veterinarian in the audience? That's it. I'm out of here. You can't make me. What? And give up show business? Somebody dial nine one one. Oh, are you still playing this thing? <laughs> so, uh... what's
1: really great about this is I, I I really wanted these examples for the episode. Like it was like a really important part of my childhood is remembering Bubsy. And mocking him or like his mocking voice is he mocked me, basically, uh, you know, for dying by like literally something attacking me three pixels away and somehow hit me because of the hitbox or something. Um, but the best part about this, and I think that Patrick deserves a lot of credit here. He recorded all of those voice samples directly from the cartridge. Oh, my <laughs> God.
0: Yeah. And that was a funny process, too, because like I read online on Facts that there's like a debug mode. So it's like, oh, cool, I'll fire that up. And, you know, the debug mode lets you access, like, a sound test. It's like, oh, oh cool, I'll, I'll find the stuff. But, like, the debug mode is super weird and buggy and, like, you nudge values on the D-pad and, like, I don't know. It was impossible to, like, trigger. Like, I could get different sound effects to play at times, but, like, I had no idea how to scroll through them and, like, get ones to play. Like, uh, it was a total mess. So then, you know, I also read online that you could do, like, a level select uh, thing with the debug but that was also just super like confusing <laughs> and complicated and like really hard to know what level I was picking. So I just completely gave up and there was like, the game has a normal passcode system. So I went through and loaded all the levels to uh cause every level starts off with like a, a loading screen that has that vocal sample. Uh, so uh, yeah, I went through and got all the Bubsy samples that way.
1: It's a, it's, it's quite an accomplishment, and I think that doesn't include some of the ones where he dies in game. But I think, I think, you know, that that's that's another, that's another task for another day. We should just have a whole Bubsy episode. If really, I think that everyone would really appreciate that. I think no one wanted to
0: hear all of those Bubsy samples <laughs> just now, and I think no one wants to ever hear them again in their life. So we're
1: gonna play them again right now.
3: Oh <laughs> uh, no, no! Don't. like it possibly go wrong. Did I mention I don't like heights? More like a bridge too short. Hey, whatever blows your hair back. Hey, I thought I saw Elvis back there. Shouldn't that be fearless? Uh-oh. Well, it worked for Clint. Go ahead, make my day. My contract does not mention paint. Hey, I didn't like this stuff. Next time, I get a stunt cat. Is there a veterinarian in the audience? That's it, I'm out of here. You can't make me. Oh, and give up show business? Somebody dial 911. Oh, Whoa, are you still playing this thing?
1: All right, so while we're talking about vocal samples, there's actually a couple SNES songs that incorporate singing into them, which is actually a really kind of impressive accomplishment. Um, here's a track called Dreams Will Never Die from Tales of Fantasia. There's also a part in the game where an NPC introduces their singing dog and asks if you want to hear it, and this is the result. Something worth noting about both of these tracks is that they, uh, there aren't any working SPC rips of them, which is unfortunately likely because the SPC format won't support them at all.
0: Yeah, and I'll quote this bit of text from Wikipedia. It says, uh, programmers sometimes use the technique to overcome the 64 kilobyte limit of the SPC 700. Uh, they do this by swapping samples in and out of memory on the fly. The file format does not support sample swapping and thus musical scores that use this trick will be
1: played back incorrectly. That explains a lot because these soundtracks aren't small. Tales of Phantasia is a giant soundtrack. Yeah. And there's no way you could fill all those vocal samples here on top of that. Uh, I guess normally at least.
0: Yeah. Um, and we have another example from a game I'd never heard of before called Down the World Mervel's Ambition. And this is the introduction track.
1: Awesome. It's crazy. It's funny because like I hadn't played, I played Tales of Phantasia, I think, on, what was it released for? Game Boy Advance, I think. I'd never played the original translated SNES ROM, so I didn't even know that, like that this stuff was happening. And like, you know, just, just to hear vocals in and, and a game I've never even heard before, uh, you know, just all of these different uh, vocal examples, like I didn't even know that that was like something that you could do. <laughs> you know, yeah. so it's really awesome. Um, yeah, those examples were new
0: to me as well. Uh, And those are the only ones we know of. So if anyone knows, if if there's any other examples of singing on the Super Nintendo, like with actual lyrics, uh, that would be fantastic. Please
1: let us know. So kind of, I guess, against what we know in normal convention, uh, Super Nintendo had a lot of uh, sports games, especially EA uh, kind of pushing like NBA Live and NHL, like all all the different kinds of, uh, you know, kind of popular franchises that are kind of still around today in some form. Um, you know, so a game that I played a, a lot, a lot was NBA Jam, uh, especially NBA Jam Tournament Edition. I had regular NBA Jam for Sega Genesis and I had Tournament Edition for Super Nintendo. And I used to just like, I mean, I played that game so much. I had a multi-tab for it and everything. But so uh, let's take a listen to the intro to this. also interesting to note too and uh, this is a great idea for a future episode all the nba jam games had like different music all of them depending on every single console they were on they didn't really they like reuse like the same kinds of themes but they like someone redid the music so it's kind of interesting uh you know that'd be a great uh, episode i mean the differences between the arcade the Sega cd version the genesis version uh the game gear version the game boy version they're all different um, and so I think that it's kind of, that would be really fun to, to highlight. Um, oh, that's and, pretty crazy! Yeah, and kind of also staying on the basketball court here uh, is NBA Live '96. Now, this is a uh, NBA Live '96, and a lot of most of the NBA Live games, but especially '96, this this is a great example of what you can do with sampling. There's some real good sample abuse here uh, in terms of just kind of making some drum stuff. So uh, let's take a listen to the intro to NBA Live '96. E A.
0: that's really cool. You hear little samples in there where I'm pretty sure they're not tracking out like every note of the guitar riff. It's like, it's like one longer sample of some of those riffs. That's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. That's kind of like, I think a lot of like uh, looking through some of the samples on some of the uh, Sega Genesis stuff too. Like they, they would have like a, uh, a sampled guitar, like a little lick or something like that. Yeah. So
0: Anytime you run into a game doing that, like you can notice a little bit of wonkiness with the the tempo sometimes, mm-hmm. because oh, yeah. since they're not tracking out every note, since it is a loop put in there somewhat haphazardly, like sometimes like it plays a little bit faster or slower than the beat. Like every, so every time it repeats, yeah. there's like a little stutter
1: or a little yeah, like, that, rush. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And also just because uh, I really like that soundtrack, let's listen to another uh, track from here. Here's Order Break 2 from NBA Live 96.
0: I just like to quickly point out too, that most of these examples are recorded from hardware. Um, so thanks Steve. Uh, this track was titled quarter break two. So I assumed the second break uh, would have that track, uh, but I actually, I had to play like a full game. To,
2: to, <laughs> I'm so sorry. to get that. I, I,
0: I set the shortest like timing interval. So it was really no problem, but it was, it was funny. I saw the track title. I was like, okay, cool. I can get there. And then I was just like, you know, 10 minutes into the game. I was like, damn it. Why isn't this track played yet?
1: <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs>
0: So uh, something I want to play here is some music from Asterix and Opelix. I've already mentioned it a couple times in the episode. It's the one and only Super Nintendo soundtrack that Albert and Gonzalez did. Uh, it has some really great music in it, and it's just kind of a shame. Like, I, I wish there was more Super Nintendo material from him. Um, let's listen to the Mountains track. So um, back with my older interview that I conducted with him, uh, which I can link to in the show notes, uh, I asked him about working with the Super Nintendo, and he said that for the soundtrack he used Octamed, a well-known Amiga 500 tracker, and he also used a very basic PC MIDI sequencer. So depending on the song, he used one or the other. Um, He also said the Super Nintendo development kit had a MIDI input, so it worked more or less like a synthesizer in real time. And he made all the instrument samples uh, himself. They were digitized from a Turtle Beach Maui PC sound card. Uh, and he also expressed, uh, you know, like a lot of uh, fond memories and uh, positivity surrounding the sound of the Super Nintendo. So I asked him what made working with the Super Nintendo enjoyable. And he said, the sound, of course. It was like a true sampler, only with 64 kilobytes. Uh, It also had that DSP that allowed to put interesting effects to the sound. The sound chip was like a complete computer with its own CPU, RAM, and audio DSP. You were free to do whatever you wanted. Usually, you would be restricted to use only a portion of RAM and CPU usage, but with the Super Nintendo, that wasn't a problem. Yeah, I think I forgot to mention that earlier. It's like the... There's the a ram it's called it's the audio ram uh so it has the sound card whatever you want to call it the super nintendo has that so you can basically do whatever you want with the audio regardless of whatever is happening in gameplay
1: those two things aren't going to conflict in uh power resources or whatever yeah that's awesome so of course we mentioned super castlevania 4 uh which is has a great soundtrack uh so let's uh let's listen to the theme of simon from uh super castlevania 4 That actually is a great soundtrack. It really, like, and like that game, even I remember renting it and playing it. And just, I, I own it now, but I, I rented it back in the day. I just remember like it has like the atmosphere is kind of nice. Yeah, um, I imagine it's kind of like what it must have felt like to play like the the X sixty eight K version of it. Like. Mm-hmm. I don't with that kind of feeling.
0: That's what the soundtrack gets its praise for. Definitely the atmosphere. I mean, you compare it to like the NES soundtracks had to have these really, really strong, bright, catchy melodies. Castlevania three does have more ambient tracks, but those are kind of like my lesser favorite ones from Castlevania three. Like Mm -hmm. all the slower, more ominous ones, not quite as big fans of all of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think this is where uh, that sort of approach shines as they do a really good job with this kind of uh, spookier ominous tracks in super castlevania 4
1: yeah so speaking of one of those uh let's listen to uh submerged city from the super castlevania 4 soundtrack Funny too. I was looking this up because I was trying to get a, a general idea of timeline for when Super Castlevania 4 came out. It actually was released on October 31st, 1991 That's crazy. Halloween. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and I guess one of uh just kind of I know that it's kind of not beloved, but there was also the uh Castlevania Rondo of Blood that was released for Super Famicom and Super Nintendo called Dracula X. Uh, so let's listen to uh, you know. I actually really like that game. I know that it's flawed. It's like in a lot of different ways, but I had a good time playing it, and I was re- like really excited when I was in Tokyo last time. I was able to find a copy of it in a junk bin for like half the price of, or one third of the price of what it should be. I think I paid like thirty dollars for it. So, oh wow. um, yeah, that's it was a pretty good find. Um, so let's just l- listen to Bloodlines from Dracula X.
0: man that track is awesome like I know uh, people prefer the turbo graphics game and soundtrack overall but that that track really shines on the Super Nintendo
1: that the, the Bloodline soundtrack is actually pretty good for what it is I mean it was released pretty late in the Super Nintendo's life but like, I'll occasionally listen to that soundtrack in, instead of listening to the Rondo of Blood soundtrack, because I think there's just some interesting decisions they made with it. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. just some good stuff. And
0: I think the entirety of the soundtrack is only using six sound channels, too. Um, you know, maybe not like title or menu music, but mm-hmm. uh, that's actually fairly common in Super Nintendo music. I didn't mention that earlier. Um, a lot of gameplay segments will have two sound channels reserved for sound effects. So sometimes, you know, it's not uncommon to, for all eight channels to not be used at once. And uh, I think that that's a thing in some Konami Super Nintendo music. So, like, another example of that would be Legend of the Mystical Ninja. I'm pretty sure a lot of tracks in that soundtrack are just uh, six channels. So. Oh, interesting. Um, so before we mentioned the Green Lantern soundtrack, uh, this is actually an unreleased game. It never came out, if you're wondering why you've probably never heard of that game. But it was the same team that did the Waterworld soundtrack. And actually, I believe some of the songs from the Waterworld soundtrack were scrapped tracks that were originally intended for the Green Lantern. But the music in this is great. So uh, let's give it a listen. So this and the Waterworld soundtrack were scored by Dean Evans, and he actually uploaded these to YouTube and offered some commentary on them. Uh, and just to quickly paraphrase what he said, he said that they were originally offered these tools from Nintendo, but he found them kind of awkward to use. So they wound up just making their own program uh, called M-E-D-I-T. And uh, the PC editor was uh, programmed using Jonathan Dunn's sound driver. Because um, this is an ocean game. Um, so mm-hmm. it, uh, Jonathan Dunn, you know, he's on like ocean nes soundtracks for like Jurassic park and stuff so actually ocean is no stranger to really good music here so i think before we express some surprise that like oh Waterworld has great music um but you know knowing the people behind it now it it makes so much more sense yeah Um, absolutely so he says like with that sound driver that they came up with as opposed to using what nintendo would have given them uh they were able to do a fair bit more with the super nintendo chip and include fancy effects and tricks in their music you know like the pitch modulation is one of them
1: so I guess the next thing we should bring up is Rockman X or Mega Man X or just the entire Mega Man library for Super Nintendo.
0: Yeah, actually, I'd like to start with Mega Man 7. Uh, oh, actually, it, I completely forgot about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. it's a game that like I was never actually that fond of its soundtrack. Um, listening to it again now, there's actually some great compositions in there, but it has a very whimsical sound. And a lot of that is due to the sample choice like there's this very bright cartoony sounds and i'm listening to some of them like i think it might be slash man's theme it's sort of like if you covered that on the nes or something it would be like an amazing track but i'm a little off put by the instrumentation Mm -hmm. um but you know the compositions are pretty solid actually and there is one song that i think just sounds amazing uh it's the wiley theme and uh so this is my favorite track from Mega Man 7 Man, yeah, I love that track. But of, of course, overall, uh the Mega Man X soundtracks are more my speed.
1: Yeah, yeah. So let's listen to Highway Stage for Mega Man X.
0: And Mega Man X Two, of course. Uh, there's a track in here I want to throw. Actually, it, w- it was something that I had already picked as like my choice for something to play. Um, but when we were talking before off podcast, you just said the same thing before I even got to mention it, and that's the uh, music to the Bubble Crab. Oh, uh, that's
1: a, that's such a great track. Yeah,
0: stage, yeah. yeah, it's awesome.
1: So one of the really great things about the Super Nintendo um, is that it could handle uh, a, a like Street Fighter 2 and like a, a pretty great arcade port. I think most of us actually probably played most of our Street Fighter 2 on, you know, the system itself. Uh, the g- game came out as like 80 bucks too, like when it first came out because it, it's like oh, wow. really it's huge. Um, but so let's take a listen to, uh, you know, we all know the tracks from this, but I think in my brain, I always think of the Super Nintendo versions of the tracks as opposed to the arcade tracks, just because I played them more. Um, so let's listen to the Street Fighter 2 Turbo version of Ken's theme.
0: Yeah, and uh, I mentioned before, Mortal Kombat leaving an impression. Um, the soundtracks I never like actually really cared for that much necessarily. Yeah, I was never it,
1: a huge fan of them. No.
0: Yeah, it just because they're very groovy and uh, you know not necessarily super melodic, uh, but I, that's part of the atmosphere and the creepiness. So it's like even if I don't necessarily like look up the Mortal Kombat music, you know, like on my off day, just to, like listen to it uh it it, some of it does have a cool vibe to it um so i i love all the percussive grooves that they have that's that's a big important part of their sound is, is the percussion I actually really really like that track just the weird arrhythmic like beats sound like they're kind of out of time in weird places uh, mm. but it sounds intentional but as a contrast to that here's another track from Mortal Kombat 3 it has like vocal samples thrown in but like some of the beats sound like a little out of time in a more like wonky kind of way it's, it's not so good
1: the 90s exactly Um, yeah that's like that's the 90s (laughs) sound so one of the games that i thought actually had really kind of wonky and cool and bizarre music was zombies ate my neighbors oh yeah Um, which, which is just like it's like detuned and kind of just fantastic so let's listen to level one from zombies ate my neighbors
0: Thanks. Oh, it's great, and like it's David Warhol on the sound engine, and mm. so it has. It definitely feels uh, like that Maniac Mansion, just sort of craziness to it. Uh, you know, like spooky sort of soundtrack that's like really fun. Something I thought was kind of funny when I was just kind of looking around on Game Facts. Uh, I do that a lot for a lot of these games to like see if they have hidden sound tests or whatever. Um, but Zombies Ate My Neighbors has a couple sound effects hidden in the like the loading screen. If you hit a like one button, uh, you hear a woman scream. If you press another button, you'll hear a dog bark.
1: Dog bark cracks me up.
0: That's oh, great. <laughs> dog dog sound effects in Super Nintendo uh, games are always great.
1: Yeah, I, I I actually have an affinity for dog sound effects. I think they're really funny. Oh, um, always, yeah. <laughs> uh, the other, I guess, while we're still on like Zombies Ate My Neighbors, the other thing is that there's kind of a Lesser-known sequel called Ghoul Patrol, oh, um, yes. not necessarily the same team that put it together, but kind of licensed the same thing. Um, I can I tell believe you, it's,
0: it's, the audio should still be uh, David Warhol, I believe.
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I think the 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 dev team was different. There, there's something about it. I, I remember reading, but the the entire soundtrack is uh, the only way I could describe it is tastic. There's a lot of <laughs> tuba. So let's listen to Ghoul Patrols Level One.
0: I love that track, uh, and the the arrangement in it is, is pretty fantastic. Just like the the low brass and the xylophone,
1: it's great. It's really fun. There's a lot of really, really, really fun tracks in there. Um, it's something that in my old uh, video game cover band beta tests, we were going to try to put together a lot of that because I could like had an excuse to play all those parts on tuba because uh, it would be a lot of fun, I guess. <laughs> so we kind of talked about you know Mario Paint music uh, and just the fact that like you know you can make music. Paint itself has some really goofy and hilarious tracks in it um and also some weird like hidden stuff so let's talk about some of the goofier and funny things let's listen to uh one of my favorite tracks probably on all of the super on all of the super nintendo soundtracks would be uh nat attack the boss theme for mario paint <music> actually interesting too while i was kind of looking into mario paint there's a bunch of hidden tracks in mario paint that are kind of accessed by doing certain things i never accessed any of these when i was a kid um and i learned that this one uh, referred to as hidden harp p like the letter p um it's like ridiculously awesome sampled harp um and it's weird because like uh, it, like it's just really good sampling so let's take a listen to that
0: So yeah, we, we used uh, a bit of Donkey Kong Country 2 music before in this example, but we we definitely can't leave out the title theme from the first Donkey Kong Country. <laughs> we certainly can't, yeah. It, it's a very iconic Super Nintendo track, and it opens up with this sort of um, self-acknowledgement of what old video game audio sounds like. It, it opens up with these simple bleeps and bloops, kind of joking at the Nintendo or arcade sound, and and then you have you have like an old man on the title screen and he gets bumped off the screen and then like the the cool modern super nintendo music kicks in um so i just love that it's like a little cut scene and it's sort of them showing off it reminds me a lot actually of tim Fallon's solstice on the nes which start, starts yeah. off with some very simple square waves mm-hmm. and then it's like boom the music kicks in so uh, yeah let's give that a listen
1: me, you know, kind of going back to sports games here, Um, Ken Griffey Jr. Baseball, which was uh, actually a Nintendo-produced baseball game, uh, features music by Tim Fallon. Um, And when I was a kid, like, I used to play this game all the time. I love this game, and I love this game for the music. Uh, Before I even knew who Tim Tim Fallon was, um, it's got this like really great gameplay music that's kind of really gets you pumped. Uh, And so let's take a listen to the gameplay music from Ken Griffey Jr. Baseball.
0: So another song that I just want to throw in here because it's really cool is the uh, Fillmore track uh, from Actraiser.
1: I guess the one thing that, you know, we've kind of been dancing around here without actually talking about it is, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of hours of uh, RPG music for the Super Nintendo. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I mean, we could make probably an insanely impressive list of just tracks that are just really fantastic. So I guess what we can do here to the best of our ability is just kind of play some of our our favorites here, um, you know, and just kind of do the best we can to highlight them because there's just so many great tracks. I guess I'll start
0: with the uh, introduction to Final Fantasy V.
1: Yeah, I mean, that trumpet, I remember hearing that trumpet for the first time uh, when I loaded up a ROM of Final Fantasy V, like, in 1998 or something like that, and just being, like, super impressed with it. Um, But the game I played and that I really appreciated was Final Fantasy VI, uh, so let's listen to the intro to Final Fantasy.
0: So there's an Enix game called Evo, A Search for Eden. And this is a great, this game has an amazing soundtrack. Uh, It's a bit different. You know, it's not a traditional JRPG because it has uh, like live, you know, it's not turn-based action and you like level up a creature as you eat more and more fish, basically. Um, But the soundtrack is right at home with all of these classic JRPG soundtracks. Uh, And I really like the boss battle tune. Uh, It sounds like something potentially straight out of a Final Fantasy game.
1: I guess one of my favorite games is kind of a weird, uh, you know, uh, release, uh, Joe Langrisser, which is Langrisser two, uh, from the Sega mega drive. It's like a remake for super Famicom. And, uh, Langrisser, the Langrisser series was known as Warsong in the U S which is a great, fantastic, uh, Sega Genesis RPG. And that was uh, scored by a uh, Noriyuki Iwadare and Iwadare is like one of in my opinion, one of the most underrated composers. So, uh, one of my favorite tracks from Durlangrisser would be uh, this. Uh, like, there's kind of two parts to the ending, but it would be the second part of the ending when kind of the credits are scrolling. <laughs>
0: I always like to bring up uh, Yeast 3 for whatever reason. I just I love that soundtrack. Uh, great I, game and a great yeah. soundtrack, yeah. Um, I, I always mention that I'm partial to the Sega Genesis version of the soundtrack, but the only version of the game I've actually played through is the Super Nintendo version. Uh, and it has an introduction track to it uh, that I really like. It's only a short loop, but I'm pretty positive it's not in the Sega Genesis soundtrack. So it's, it's cool to hear uh, in the Super Nintendo game. So obviously there's so much like we could make a massive uh, playlist if we really wanted. So there's just so much stuff we couldn't fit in here. There's um, Chrono Trigger comes to mind, like
1: Secret of Mana. There's so much mm-hmm. good RPG music. There's so much good Super Nintendo music in general. I mean, yeah, um, I mean, we, we didn't even talk about any of the Romancing Saga games. There's three of them. Um, you know, there's also Star Ocean. Uh, the, uh, you know, there's just. I mean, I'm looking at the list of things we're about to leave out and I'm sad, but we, I think we, I think we covered <laughs> a
0: lot of ground here. Um, so, you know, this was a lot of fun to research. I just, I really liked diving into the obscure audio features of the Super Nintendo. Uh, it was a learning experience and uh, yeah, I just, I look forward to, I hope there's going to be tools on the horizon that make it more accessible for everyone. Cause it, it is really cool playing around with the echo, the reverb, the noise. Mm-hmm um and just sort of it it would be nice to see something that harnesses the super nintendo to its full ability uh, and also being user-friendly at the same time
1: and and i hope that any of what we just talked about for the last who knows how long uh has uh, provide some kind of inspiration to someone uh to to show that there is a uniqueness to this that it isn't just eight channels of midi or eight channels of samples that the, the the super nintendo has a distinct sound and hopefully we were able to um uh, I guess demystify using a bigger word here. Uh, th- you know what people don't know about this system. Uh, so what else is going on?
0: So I just wanted to quickly give a huge uh, thanks to everyone who's supporting us with the Patreon. know it actually directly helped with the production of this episode uh i was able to record a lot of uh, examples from hardware
1: from this episode um because of your help yeah no thank you very much it's uh, just kind of almost shocked that (laughs) and, and honored that you guys would like uh donate anything to us just to keep this going so The show support was really humbling and, you know, we're going to continue to work hard. I mean, hopefully that, you know, this episode (laughs) is is a testament to that. Yeah. I mean, it is our 20th episode, so it's kind of we wanted to do something a little splashy and, uh, you know, we're just going to keep growing the podcast even more. So I'm really I'm really happy. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Again,
0: uh, thank you so much, everyone.
1: Um, so, Steve, you had, like, this kind of soundtrack discovery recently? Uh, yeah, so, I, I don't know what the heck happened. L- long story short, uh, we did the Sharp x 68 k episode, uh, and I discovered that there was a soundtrack for the Sharp x 60 k for a game called Robot Construction, uh, and the game, or RC, something like that, um, and the game was actually scored by Masashi Kageyama, uh, which is kind of weird. I had to do a bunch of searching, I asked a bunch of different people, kind of eventually figured it out. I think we even had, um, I even had Stefan, uh, talk to Sakai-san to see if there was, like, to try to confirm if Kageyama had worked on this game. Um, so yeah, I'll link it here, it's really great and it's reminiscent of Gimmick, um, but it's like, you know, it's just to hear Kage-san doing something on eight channels of, you know, FM, it's just kind of really awesome. Uh, and it really captures the vibe of his style. So I don't think there is anything that like had mentioned previously that that was something that anyone knew he had done. Uh, I know that it was kind of like Electric Sheep is the company that did it. Um, so I actually reached out to uh, Kageyama himself and uh, asked if he could confirm it. And he said, yes, he actually did that soundtrack. He also did a soundtrack for another game, which was actually released on Windows uh, called uh, Motos, Motor Squad. That's what it is. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was done in general MIDI. He recommends that, you know, the sound could be recreated best in SC-55 or SC-88. Oh, okay. Um, but he doesn't have the application or the data. Yeah, uh, you know, It wasn't necessarily in MIDI, so he, it's probably lost unless someone can find a copy of that particular game. So, But that's cool. So that's another kage soundtrack that... Uh, if we could find it somewhere, I think it plays on Windows Three Point One of all things. Uh, we'd be able to hear more of his music. So uh, I'm really, you know, it's just kind of a cool finding. And, and again, I'll link, I'll link to that. I actually found the person who posted it and said, "Hey, this is Kage-san's music. Uh, credit him." So that they did that too. So it's pretty cool. Uh, it's one of those rare things where I feel like, "Hey, I found something," even though no, like, it's it's yeah. really
0: great because I'm pretty sure I tried looking up a list of his works before. I don't think either of those games were listed anywhere.
1: Yeah, so. I, and, and like my sources to actually confirm it, were Japanese, uh, like Japanese game music enthusiasts, and I translated the website, and then like uh, I couldn't find anything. And the person had posted the intro to Robot Construction. I started watching the intro, and there was his name right there, Masashi Kageyao. I'm Like, okay, he did this. He did this game, I guess. <laughs> that's great. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah that's a, that's a really great finding. Yeah.
0: So we'll go into some comments on the previous episode about Lagrange Point. Um, XYZ had an illuminating comment about uh, a limitation I thought was in place. I had mentioned that there was a limit of 64 custom patches that the VRC7 could do, Um, but he says, what you must have been looking at there was the references for PPMCK, which does indeed have a limit of 64 custom patches but that's a limitation of the software, not the hardware. Custom patch definitions are literally just eight writes to the chip's registers and are not stored anywhere on the chip, and the max you could have is just determined by how much space you have in your game's ROM. So uh, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, so the game the game could just tell it like oh, this is this is a new custom patch. Um, I just thought it was interesting cuz when I tried dumping all the patches, it's like I got I think it was like 52 distinct patches and then like another 12 kind of like weird junk ones mm-hmm. which padded it out to 64 total. So it's kind of like a weird coincidence that it Yeah, hit that it kind same of limit. really is, yeah. Although it makes me wonder if maybe so maybe it's not a limit of the chip, but maybe Konami's sound driver happened to have that's the way it was designed maybe it was similar to ppmck and that limitation
1: yeah i can imagine so yeah um all right so another thing that kind of came up uh that xyz input here uh is all right i gotta interject on this why the hell do you always uh, say every digit individually three five two six um and then it, you know colorful words about it i mean you know it, it's just I've never heard any of things you know what I mean? like I've never heard any of these things pronounced by anyone in real life. I don't really have any friends oh, who, who talk about this stuff likewise. You know, Which so is like, funny, no, because in
0: the episode, because he's absolutely right, like, we do, like, we talk about, like, the YM2612, uh, like, we, like, re- like definitely spell out every number. Mm-hmm. But it's funny, because I can remember in the past saying, like, 2612.
1: I mean, it's something it's that like, I do, because, like, I'm not, like, super dyslexic, but it's easier for me to read numbers if they're that way. It's harder for me in my brain to combine t- uh, 26 into 26, because, like, it, 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 like, slows me down a little bit. Um, so, I mean, just, I think maybe it's just my own glitches about how I say these things, you know? Um, no, but, but- it, it,
0: it really makes a lot more sense though. Cause it's like, when you, when you say like all of the numbers long, it gets like easier to get lost in them. But when you break it up like that, it's easier on the ear. So,
1: yeah. Um, um, yeah. okay. So I guess an end to the argument and all the situation, especially about the, uh, see, I have to pause to say it, 2151, um, is that I had actually been, was talking in one of the battle of the bits discords, uh, and talking about, um, this excellent 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 interview with brad fuller that uh george sanger had actually shared with me uh quite some time ago um and uh brad fuller refers to it as the 2151 so if brad fuller calls it the 2151 it probably is a
0: 2151 yeah it makes sense yeah Yeah. definitely (laughs) yeah there's a few other uh technical corrections in there that are good to know i think you mentioned something about the opl3 having nine waveforms uh it's actually just eight waveforms yeah
1: i I just misread the line yeah Yeah. because it's it's i think i said 11 and there's only eight and then i looked at it i'm like how did i count 11 i must have counted it like half asleep so yeah Mm -hmm. there's only eight Mm -hmm.
0: So yeah, we have another comment here from Lucian Freud. Uh, they mentioned that my rip from YouTube years ago sounded a bit different on the Departure and Rival track. There's like this ending part with like this pitch bend that I really like in that, in that track. Um, but I think he was really used to hearing it sound a certain way, and in the episode it just kind of sounded wrong to him. But it's a bit of the reverse, because when I uploaded the soundtrack to YouTube years ago, I ripped it from emulation. so, and I do remember it like sounding a little bit different. Like when I heard your recording, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. oh, there's something, you know, something a bit different there. Um, but uh, yeah, that's the, everything we had in that episode, Steve recorded from hardware. So my uh, YouTube uploads antiquated at this point, I should probably replace it with uh, like a proper VRC7 recording.
1: Yeah, it's just interesting because, like, you know, with with the limitations of actually having access to the device I'm using, the uh, TNS HFC 3, it wouldn't be heard by a lot of people. So uh, I understand the frustration. There's a lot of different things that I have, like video game soundtracks, and I've heard them actually recorded on hardware, especially like Genesis stuff. And you're like, Oh, that's what actually, it's supposed to sound like. <laughs>
0: actually, something I wanted to ask you. So when you record from that device, um, mm-hmm. you know, because I've, I've never used one myself, yeah. I, I guess like the the stock NES audio and the expansion audio are two different like outputs, right? Like you put them into a
1: mixer. So what I did, it, yeah, the TNS H, uh, the TNS HFC three is kind of just like a cartridge that enters, and then you put the VRC seven, uh, and so uh, into that, and so you put the look range point card in. Then uh, it it kind of mixes together, you know, like without being a little with being a little ignorant of exactly what it's doing. Um, and then I just like you, it has its own uh, mic, out or it has its own output on top, like just a sort of standard uh, eighth inch, and I mm-hmm. plug that into my mixer and then put it through. So I didn't premix the VRC Seven or anything; that was just the raw output. Ah, um, okay, in- interesting. Mm-hmm. Because something I noticed with the mix is I thought the
0: stock NES audio was a little loud sounding to me. Mm-hmm. Again, my my only frame of reference is listening in emulation, so I have no idea what the mix actually is on hardware. If you just plug the game in and don't mm-hmm. and don't use that device. Um, but it sounded better in a way. So it's kind of like, if I did do a re-rip of the soundtrack, mm-hmm. um, like I would lean to how you ripped it, uh, like, you know, I would, I would just use your recordings. I'm sure. Cause like it's having the stock NES drums be a little bit louder than what I'm used to, like gave it mm-hmm. more of an edge. I think it's the soundtrack sounds better that way.
1: Yeah. And for the, the, the kind of the goofy, uh, OPLL thing we did, I actually pre-mixed that because... Uh, on the TNS HFX4, which is the board I have with the OPLL on it, you can you can mix the chip. So I tried to mix that to to my ears. So that it, it might be a little bit louder or whatever. But when I did the the VRC7 recording, I literally just set everything flat, and so everything should be you know what what you hear you know from the gotcha.
0: Computer. Oh, cool. So there's a comment here from Hunretrogeek uh, pointing out that the YM2612 actually only has sine wave operators. You know, we talked about the VRC7 having like a different base waveform you can use called rectified sine wave. Mm-hmm. Um, so despite being more limited, you know, the VRC7 only has two operators instead of four, uh, it can still make sounds that the Genesis can't make. So that is kind of cool.
1: Yeah, and it, it, like kind of discovering about how that actually works was, was something, was a finding for me also in that episode, um, because I mostly work with Genesis audio. So I just never had to worry about that, I guess.
0: Yeah, and speaking of the rectified sine waves, uh, our friend Kevin, curriculum crasher, in the comments, uh, mentioned that you can hear octaves with the rectified sine wave. Uh, So he says, I believe that this is because the flattening of the sine wave trough um, creates events uh, at twice the rate as the sine wave peak. Uh, So a frequency of an octave is a ratio of 2 to 1, of course. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's cool. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, uh, that it, it, it... kind of halves things and makes this octave effect. So Kevin also brought up something else that was kinda of interesting. We had mentioned in the episode that uh we thought it was cool how the VRC7 mixed with the base NES audio in the Grange Point. Um that with a lot of the FM Sega Master System soundtracks, they just use FM, right? They like they don't mix it with the base PSG audio. Um so as uh, Kevin says, if I recall correctly, the Sega Master System FM supported games do not mix FM with the Sega Master System PSG. Either PSG or FM mode is selected at boot up if the YM2413 is detected. Uh, the song data is applied for either PSG or FM mode, but not designed to mix from both sources, as is done with VRC7 Lagrange Point. Curious if anyone knows more about this.
1: Retro Geek uh, responded to this by saying, I've heard that there's actually no hardware that disables the PSG. If the FM is present, it can still be used without issues, they just never did so.
0: Yeah, and uh, I'm tracking it actually has an example here. It says that the Japanese BIOS is the perfect example of this. It's one of the very few tracks that do mix PSG and FM, uh, you know, but it does do it. Which is crazy. That's cool. Like, I didn't know. I did not know of that example.
1: So this is actually really funny. I think that there was uh, a competition uh, for Battle of the Bits mm, two years ago. Uh, and it's, there's kind of a joke that no one knows how to define what Sega Master System audio is. Uh, you know, like if there's a category of Battle of the Bits and it's called SMS or Sega Master System, um, what what are people expecting? So uh, people were entering PSG stuff and someone entered an FM, an OPLL track. And everyone's like, well, wait a second, no one else has the ability to do that. Like, is that really fair? Because like, there's all kinds of different categories and classifications for like NSF. Like you could say a 2A03 NSF, which would just be like classic Nintendo only would be its own category. Mm -hmm. Or you could say NSF with expansions, you know what I mean? So uh, the OPLL to the SMS is technically an expansion. But what was interesting about that is I think one of the arguments that I made uh, which I was incorrect on, and you know, actually, I think it was X Y Z who submitted this track, uh, which is actually really funny. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, but <clears throat> I think the one thing that we disagreed on is that you know, the, the the Sega Master System itself could play at any given time both FM and PSG at the same time. So it was like if this was a category like, and we're trying to recreate music that was there, is that allowed? You know what I mean? Could, are you allowed to use PSG and FM for a category if you're trying to emulate the sounds that were currently there? But I guess if you're trying to push the limits of the hardware, yeah, I mean, nothing used it. Uh, and it was just kind of weird. And I think it is because the FM or uh, the OPLL was an add-on, you know, and I think that like to simplify things, it just read one or the other, I guess.
0: Oh yeah, and I guess just by design by developers, not as a technical limitation. Yeah, that's interesting. And someone noticed that I put the music of Pinbot, you know, the NES version, in the background in our last talking section. Um, and I just acknowledge at some point, like, it's inevitable that we're, we'll do a David Wise uh, NES music episode. Um, I've just, I, I, I like his particular sound design. Anytime you have a, a person whose sound is unique and recognizable right away, mm-hmm. that really interests me. So, uh, you
1: know, I don't know quite when we'll get around to it, but it's something that will definitely happen at some point. Yeah, David Wise is awesome. Absolutely. So now that we're kind of done with comments, I guess it's time for Name That Game.
0: Yeah. So uh, last week we did something a bit different where we had an unknown track. Uh, you know, we didn't know what it was. Um, it was something, that, something that someone had recorded on their phone a bunch of years back uh, from Game Boy. We were speculating maybe a Game Boy Color game. Um, and no one guessed it. So we'll just play it again once more, just in the off chance that some, someone listening might recognize what it's from. Uh, so, if you know what it is, please let us know because it's kind of—it's a mystery to everyone, and it would be fun to figure out. bad news we'll go back to our normal uh scheduled name that game segment here so uh we have another track picked out see if you can name that game Okay, so that wraps things up. Steve, did you have a closing track picked out for this episode?
1: Yeah, uh, and it's kind of like, you know, we kind of glossed over a lot of the RPGs, but I think one of the, in my opinion, one of the most monumental accomplishments uh, of this actual composer's career uh, was in uh, the Super Nintendo era. And I mean, this this comp- particular composer has gone on to do many other different things, but I think this was one of the greatest accomplishments. And I would have to say that would be uh, Uematsu's uh, Dancing Mad uh, the final kind of amalgamation of boss themes from uh, Final Fantasy VI. Um, it is epic. It is long, <laughs> very long. <laughs> <Yep. clears throat> but it but it, it covers so many different grounds and so many different emotions. Um, it's kind of like a fitting end to a game that is kind of an opera in itself. Um, <clears throat> you know, kind of like that last track. So I thought it would be nice uh you know (laughs) this episode's long as long enough as it is but what if we put the whole thing at the end here so uh here's all of dancing mad and uh thank you for listening to retro game audio